Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. We started this message uh, entitled Guardian, Guardians, Guarding the Foundations uh, last Sunday. Uh, and for whatever reason, it's creating quite a buzz. Uh, there's been 140 downloads in just one state. And you'll see that on the, on the sheet up here if you, if you want to look at the statistics. But a lot of it is from this message that, I don't know, maybe it's the title, maybe it's the subject matter. But the Lord's been impressing upon me since the end of December that this subject... The idea of discernment that needs to be carefully taught and expounded upon. And I pray that he will continue to add the blessings uh, as he sees fit. But what we're guarding are those same foundational truths that we've been studying in Jude uh, through, through that study. The same things that Jude called for us to contend, uh, to, to contend for are the same things that we're, in a sense, guarding here with this armor. You have to excuse me for a minute. i got something in my eye. Last week, we looked at the beginning of, of this text there in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 19. And that's really going to be the, where we stay for the remainder of this study, Ephesians 6 verses 14 through 19, and we'll start with reading it, but we, we looked last time at the stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, and we'll begin today with what follows. But let's go ahead and read Ephesians 6, verse 14 through 19, and it says there, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and then paul says and for me that utterance may be given unto me that i may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel and then he refers in that final verse of this little section here to himself as an ambassador in bonds. And Lord willing, we'll see more of that in, in uh, the parts of this series that follows. What we want to look at here, beginning with in this outline, is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate for a soldier, and, and we talked last time about this as well, but Paul's likely under house arrest or has gotten enough experience with house arrest that uh, he sees Roman centurions constantly. So the armor that he refers to likely would have had in mind that which the Roman guard would have worn. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of things, a lot of background, a lot of connections and typology that we want to kind of clear up as we look at this armor with the Roman armor uh, in mind. And the breastplate for a soldier, one of the Roman soldiers, would have covered the part of the body from the neck to the navel where the ribs end. A breastplate or a corset would typically consist of two parts, protecting the body on both sides from the neck to the middle. Righteousness here is speaking of something man would be using as the substance of the breastplate. What a, what a thing to imagine. And whatever it is that you have in your mind already when somebody talks about a breastplate, imagine the breastplate of a Christian soldier being formed of righteousness. I don't know that uh, this piece of paper would qualify as a breastplate for me. Now, Eddie's got quite a few knives out there. I guess we could try it, but this piece of paper isn't going to stop any of them. Probably not even the smallest, dullest blade. It will go right through a breastplate made of paper. So we can make a, a scientific assessment, a hypothesis then, that the righteousness must be more firm and protecting than a piece of paper. And we could continue on, but most aren't going to jump behind a breastplate made of the cushion of this seat. This, a little bit harder, but I've seen those knives. They'll probably go through this eventually. And a Christian is likely to experience more warfare than just a one-time attack. So the breastplate that's made of righteousness is going to have to be firm. It's going to have to be rock solid without weakness. If there's a divide anywhere in that armor, it will eventually wear itself out just from putting it on and taking it off and putting it on and taking it off. A man has no righteousness of his own. So this part of the armor is borrowed. 
It's borrowed from Christ Jesus who imputed it upon us. It's the only righteousness we have. If we had any type of righteousness by which to protect ourselves in a, in a breastplate type manner, it would be weak, it would be feeble, and we'd probably be too lazy to put it on. It would not protect us. It would do us no good whatsoever. But righteousness, as defined by Strong's, integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting, is the only condition of acceptability before God. Without this part of the armor, you shall surely perish. You might think of it in this way. You showed up to battle with any other kind of breastplate on, our general-in-arms, the chief of the Lord's armies is going to say, depart. I don't know you to be a soldier of this army. I don't know you to be one who should be here. Depart from me. I never knew thee, he would say. Born in sin, we only bear the old man. When we are born again, we are commanded in Ephesians 4, verses 23 through 24, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, to put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And as difficult as it might be for us to imagine how to put on this new man, few could argue that since we're in the same book with the same writer, and he's using the same words here, this new man is a, an essential part of this breastplate. This new man is the only part of a born-again believer that has righteousness to bear. Without this new man, we're turned about, we're turned away. Depart from me. I never knew thee. We must figure out how to put on this new man. Colossians chapter 3, Paul's the writer of this book as well. He, he writes there in verse 8, But now ye also put off all these. We're told by Paul in Ephesians 6 to put on something, but he points out some things in Colossians 3 to take off. Uh, if, if we were wearing a suit jacket like a couple are here today and we were to put, tell them to put on their armor, the first thing they're likely to do is take off those jackets, maybe take off those ties because you're about to put something else on that's absolutely crucial. It's absolutely protective and it has a great purpose. You may put those other things on in the example, but you're going to take them off to put on this armor. Paul says, take off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communications out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Uh-oh, Paul literally says that old man thing again. And then what's he say? Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. This... Uh, let me finish that sentence. But Christ is all and in all. We're going to keep reading there in just a moment. But is there a greater example of what he's talking about right there than a soldier? A soldier going to war? There's no longer black and white. This is your brother. This is who you fight with. With the same purpose in mind, you both march in the same direction or you perish. All of these other things are gone. All of these other barriers of communication, barriers of ability to love one another or be neighborly to one another, they are removed. You need him, he needs you. This is what Paul is describing for the Christian. And we've already established the Christian is at war with both things seen and unseen, with great power that we could not hope to overcome. And so far in this armor, we're not given anything to overcome it either. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. We're going to keep reading there again, but I want to stop again. Everything he talks about putting on there, think again where this breastplate is, from neck to navel. Think about what it protects. Paul comes right out and says, 
above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This breastplate, this piece of the armor is most important for your protection. What is layered over the heart here, what is layered over this the, the heart, the middle, the meat of your body, I don't know if anybody knows this or not, but if you were to be lopped off here, down, that bottom part without the heart, has it can't do anything anymore. It's important that this midsection be protected and guarded, strengthened and equipped. And what he says to put on doesn't sound like strength. He doesn't say the upper torso of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. He says patience, meekness, humbleness, forgiveness. Why? Because those are dangerous to the heart without. If I don't forgive you, I put my heart in jeopardy. If I'm not patient with you, if I'm not peaceful with you, if I'm not humble, if I'm not meek, I put my own heart in jeopardy. Now, I know we spent a lot of time in 2022 talking about forgiveness. So I pray this is just review. But this is what the righteousness uh, breastplate is talking about. That you're preparing yourself, standing, girding your loins, and putting upon your midsection, covering your heart with characteristics we saw in Christ that are going to protect you. And it's all one piece. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father and the Father by him. And again, we have a sense of uh, a, a, a soldier, a, a, uh, a platoon, a group of soldiers together here, that they have one banner, that they're marching in one direction, that they are serving for one cause, and they're giving thanks to that cause. They're giving thanks for what they've been assembled to do, what they've been assembled to guard, what they've been assembled to protect. And we're talking about guarding the foundations. We are, as soldiers required, exhorted by Paul here to put on this armor because we need it. Elisha said unto one of the servants who lost their borrowed axe head, and remember, this righteousness is borrowed. He says, take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it, 2 Kings 6, 7. Take it up. Elisha says, exalt this borrowed righteousness of Christ, for with it you shall live and not perish. Without it, you're not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Without it, you will not march. You will perish. Oh, preacher, that's extreme. All right, let's go to war. Pretty reasonable. China is involved now. Let's go to war. But you leave all your armor behind. Take whatever gun you want to take. But no helmet, no goggles, no shoes, no breastplates, no bulletproof vests, no flak jackets. Just you and your favorite gun. And barefoot, you go on into war. You can wear some trousers. You can wear some clothes. But no armor. Because you're saying the armor is not important. So you go ahead and go to war without the armor. And we'll count down how long it will take before you perish. You need the armor. It's critical that we put on the armor. A prisoner of his own home, Paul, writes from house arrest, you must put on the armor. Why? To stand, as we saw in our introduction. Why is this important? The accuser, Satan, stands before God day and night, accusing the elect. We see this in Revelation 12.10. He does not rest to bury you. He sought, as we said last time, to sift Peter as wheat, to tear him to shreds. That's what Satan wanted to do with Peter. He's done way more than me. Simon Peter's had a, a greater effect on the Lord's churches than I have. Can you imagine how easy it would be if I didn't have the armor for Satan to just tear apart my whole life? You don't have to imagine. You've seen it. This is not just about what you can see and choose to be a part of. 
When some says, talking about discernment, and if I were to ask you to define it and just write down in your own notes how you define discernment, that's probably what you'd come up with. The ability to see and choose what I want to be a part of, to exercise discernment toward what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. But see, Christian discernment's a little different because you don't get the luxury of deciding what you're going to actually do and what you're not going to actually do. This is a commandment of God. Go ye therefore. This is a, a commandment of Paul. If you're going to go, you put on the armor. How does that connect to a commandment to you? Christ Jesus said, He who does not die unto himself, take up his cross, and follow after me, is not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. You've been commanded to go. But I don't want to! Make sure your calling and election is sure. Make sure you are indeed born again. Do you have a love for God? A love for the brethren? Well, we're getting past the peace part that we just talked about in Sunday school. I want to ask you, point blank, do you love God? Well, it's more of a love-hate. I really like it when he allows things to happen in my life that are good, and I really hate it when he allows things to happen in my life that are bad. Well, you deserve those bad things. Those good things are mercy. But those bad things, we deserve that every hour for all eternity. And those bad things probably don't even measure up to eternity in hell or even a minute in hell where a cool drop of water dropped upon the tongue is considered to be mercy. It is more than just what you allow others in this life to see you be involved in. That's also not an appropriate definition of discernment. The accuser never rests. He's always laying about his snares and standing. He is always standing to accuse you. Your enemy, the devil, is always standing. And Paul says, you got to do all this. you got to put on this armor to stand. And your enemy is always standing. Never resting. This breastplate is of the utmost importance, beloved. Please do not disregard Paul's words here. Please don't throw it away as just some symbolic metaphor the Baptists use for getting people into the church. We've lost so many decades on the idea that people are just trying to convince folks to join church. I want to see souls saved. Saved souls that truly love God will be faithful unto God. And I'll trust that unto him. And we teach on those things too. But I'd rather see lost souls saved. I'd rather see God dealing with people. Bringing them to repentance. He's laid out how to handle the rest. But those who don't start there, who aren't saved, everything they do after that means nothing. The third thing we see right there next in the text speaks of the feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we just spoke on peace, so this, this is good timing. The word shod here uh, literally is a reference to having one's shoes bound or tied on, secured. And here, of course, we see not a reference to shoes themselves, but rather we have instruction to bind our feet, to bind our ways of travel, with the preparation or readiness of the gospel of peace. When we tell our kids, time to get ready for church, most times we say, get your shoes on. A sign of preparedness is a child who's at the door, afraid of being a rotten egg, with their shoes on and ready to go. That's how we do it. In my house, you, you do it how you want to. Livy's never been a rotten egg. I want to make sure we point that out. She's always at the door, shoes shod and ready to go usually with more stuff than she needs for a 20-minute drive, but she's always ready. Again, Satan, your enemy, he is a divider. He is a destroyer. Some of the greatest battles in my house have come from whether or not shoes are required to leave. Sometimes somebody's wearing shoes that don't belong to her. Sometimes some don't want to tie their shoes. But some of the greatest battles... Greatest divisions have been rooted in our lack of preparedness 
to go. It's literally in our DNA what Paul's writing of here. When the believer walks in the way of peace, the gospel way, Satan cannot reach him. Listen to this. The Greek word here for uh, pre preparation can also be translated prepared foundation. This is not just talking about shoes. We'll use it as a type, but it's not just talking about shoes. It's talking about a prepared foundation. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the purpose of Christ? If not, you're not prepared to march, Christian soldier. Think of what this would have meant for those in Ephesus who were receiving this letter. Marching was an essential part of a soldier's life. And no soldier was going to get far without sturdy shoes. Solid shoes would keep a soldier's feet from slipping. The Romans at that time were known for studding their thick leather shoes with hobnails so that as they were going up an incline or coming down a decline, they had an extra grip in the ground that you're not going to get from the soles of your feet. The Christian's feet should be clean. We see this in John 13. Beautiful. They should be shod with the gospel or prepared with the gospel or bound and secured with the gospel. Christians who are ready to witness for Christ have an easier time defeating the evil one. Listen to this. Romans 10, verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. That's not just the pastor. John 13, that I just referenced, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And uh, supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things unto his hand, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel girded himself after that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye not what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example what ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So what we have here is the chief of hosts, our general in arms, washing the feet of his soldiers to make sure what? To make sure they're prepared. To make sure they're prepared. Now he's not washing their whole bodies, he's washing their feet. Because they must have a prepared foundation. And he's looking to all of the brethren in the church that are there with him to make sure their feet are prepared foundations. To make sure they're prepared to march. You know, one of the few parts you really can't see on your body is that backside of the bottom of your foot. He's inspecting their feet for them. He's washing them clean. And one, I don't believe this text is telling us to literally wash each other's feet. I think it's telling us as brethren in the church to look to one another to make sure we're prepared, to make sure the gospel is ready, to make sure that we are ripe for the work that lies ahead, that our foundation is prepared. If we see one whose countenance has fallen, we look unto him. We see that he's washed. 
We remind him of the gospel. We remind him of Christ Jesus. What then does it mean to be ready to witness? It's a phrase that's kind of thrown around a lot. What does it mean to be ready to witness? To truly be ready to follow after Jesus, we must do as he instructed in Luke 9, verse 23. He said unto all of them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Your feet aren't prepared if you haven't. Let him take up his cross daily. How do you take up your cross? It's that breastplate of righteousness. That cross pictures a new man. And follow me. If our feet are prepared, foundations. If the shoes are bound or tied on, shod, we're ready to go. We're ready to follow. And he says to do this daily. So many of us maybe have done this once and thought, I remember that day. Jesus says to do it daily. Jesus said new temptations enter the heart. Jesus said the ashes get cold. And those old priests had to take those cold, dead ashes out and get that fire going again every morning, every new day to get it going, burning hot. But they were prepared. The fourth thing we see here, the shortest of the points, it says, above all, most importantly, Paul says, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The shield of the Roman soldiers was typically made of goatskin or calfskin, stretched over sturdy pieces of wood. And the Roman shield stood about four feet long and was about three feet wide with four corners. So it's not that round Captain America thing. It's more of a rectangular thing with calf skin or goat skin stretched over it with a, a type of wood frame. Some are thinking, well, boy, metal would be better. Well, keep listening. Iron rims were typically fitted along the top and the bottom edges, and an iron circle was attached to the center of the Roman shield. The boards curved inward, and a leather strap was fastened to the shield's back. These shields, this calf skin, the goat skin, would be drenched in water daily. Drenched in water. When the enemies fired their fiery arrows and it struck those soaked shields, the flames were extinguished. What would happen if the shield from yesterday wasn't soaked again the next day? Uh, might burn up. You run a, a pretty good risk. Because you're going in half-cocked, not ready to go. Your shield is not prepared. But a proper shield is drenched with water. Oh, the, the beautiful types that we've had with water. We just looked last Sunday afternoon at two different ways in which water is referenced by the Lord Jesus during his ministry. And I encourage you to go back to those outlines or go back to that message to hear more details on that. But there's a purifying from it, a washing from it. And this shield is prepared by it. When the firing of these fiery darts were at their most intense, the soldiers would put their shields together in what was referred to as a tortoise formation, having even more protection. Soldiers in the front, shields at the ready, in front of the platoon. Soldiers at the side, their shield would be on one side or their shield on the other, preparing or protecting the platoon. Soldiers in the middle, the shields would be up. In this tortoise foundation, all that could be seen were multiple shields and fiery darts, fiery arrows coming down on these soaked shields with no victory as they're quenched by this shield of faith. Faith is something prepared. Faith is something we're given, but we need to be soaked every day to be prepared lest our shields be dried. What happens to leather when it dries? It begins to crack. It begins to be no good. Is your faith dried and cracked? Or do you soak your shield? Do you soak into the word of God that you are ever drenched? I think of that psalm, and I can never think of which one it is, but the very short psalm that talks about the blessings of the Lord being poured out of, as an ointment over the head and it drips down. It's, it's described as dripping down and just coming off the, the bottom of the garment. There's so much ointment, so much blessing being poured out. We just sang showers of blessing. Are we drenching our shield? Are we preparing our faith 
so that it's prepared to quench those fiery darts. The enemy, yet again, stands ever ready to deceive and to tear apart. He stands before God the Father, pleading the opposite of our case, pleading our deserving of everlasting punishment, continuing to seek to shred us. Is your faith ready? Your faith is your shield. Two different lessons that we've looked at in our afternoon study probably about six, seven months ago. Fear not, believe only. Followed by another one that said, doubt not, believe only. And this was when the Lord brought uh, a quickening or life to those who were dead. Those who the mourners had already been called in for. Paul, again in Acts, same thing with Tabitha or Dorcas. I can't remember which one it was. Those who know their Bibles understand what I just did there. Listen, beloved. This might be what is missing from our discernment piece. We will be carried away by every wind of doctrine if our faith is not soaked in the Word of God. I think our Baptist brethren for so long have been comfortable with listening to one or two men say, read this commentator, don't read that commentator. Sing this song in the hymnal, don't sing this song in the hymnal. Where's our faith? Where's our discernment? Where is our knowledge of God's word that allows for us to hear that still small voice saying, enter in? or do not enter in. The calling of that small voice to say, give warning to the brethren, danger lies here. Do we have scorch marks on our shield in which fiery darts have come down and been put out? Or do we have holes in our shields in which we failed to quench those fiery darts? Think about it. Even the dry shields, when the arrow came, oh good, I'm safe. The arrow did not come through. But after a few minutes, they see daylight in that tortoise formation. Uh-oh. I didn't soak my shield. That arrow, and these are most of Satan's fiery darts, fiery arrows, they don't kill right away. They strike and they burn holes. They strike and they burn holes until your testimony is transparent like Swiss cheese. Until your example before this lost and dying world is weak and hypocritic at best. Hypocritical at best. I've taught on the armor so often and missed this part in just seven years of preaching. Our need to soak these shields of faith in the word of God for its very upkeep. The faith can't be lost but it can be weak. When the firing or these fiery darts were at their most intense, they're in this tortoise formation, we see Paul's picture for the church. Who's got their shield on the right side? That's my brother Clark. And his feet are prepared. I, I helped him with washing his feet. He's helped me with washing my feet. And he can therefore believe the left side is strong too because his brother Joe's got the left side. How are we doing on the front? Brother Steve's got his shield up, and he's prepared, and it's been soaked in the Word of God, and it's ready. How about the top, the giant of the crew? He's got his shield up on top, and his shield is soaked with the Word of God. His faith is strong, and the church marches on. These soldiers don't go into a tortoise formation and sit. They go into a tortoise formation and charge. And they keep moving forward as they take on the fiery darts that are harmless to them because the fire is quenched. Paul's writing to a church. This shouldn't be lost on us. The wicked take aim before God through Satan, as mentioned before, but also in this life behind and in front of our backs every single day. Believe, beloved, that the God of all hope and peace is equipped to handle all that may come. He will preserve you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says what? 
Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These are the words of Christ Jesus. It's not a pleading. It's a type of invitation like what we saw last Sunday afternoon when he said, come and drink. And we talked about what that would have been like for the hearers that day. What is it like for us today as we hear Christ Jesus say, come unto me? Here's some qualifiers. Are you, in, uh, are you laborious? Are you heavy laden? Are you worn out? Are you exhausted? Here's why. You're trying to put a shield in front and the top and on the sides by yourself against an enemy that never sits, that never rests, that can't be seen, and is constantly firing his fiery darts. If you're one of his, be faithful. Join the platoon. Take up your cross. Follow after him. Fifthly, we see, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. The Roman soldier's helmet was fashioned from bronze or iron with two hinged cheek pieces protecting the sides of his face. The helmet protected the soldier's skull and neck from his enemy's weapons and falling debris. They often had a, a crest with plumes of horsehair on top for identification of rank. Taking on this helmet of salvation, we acknowledge that dangers may come from even the air itself, from every direction, but we are confidently identified as a member of our Lord's army. What an honor it is to announce our presence on the battlefield in the name of our Lord. Turn over to 1 Samuel with me. Uh, and I'm going to start pretty quickly because I think we can get through this outline today and I think it would be beneficial to have it all at once. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to start reading in verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with the Philistine. He's speaking of Goliath. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. He's speaking of himself. There came a lion, there came a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Something I want you to note right away. Goliath defied the armies of God, and he did not get away with it. The armies of God stood, they were there, and God sent. David is a type of deliverer here. God sent a deliverer, he sent one whose faith was strong enough to take down the enemy. Why? Because the gates of hell shall not stand against God's church. David said, Moreover, the Lord hath delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and thy Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail, and David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. Um, and that's important. We'll get to that later. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off of him. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, and even in a scrip, and in his and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me. 
and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, before we continue, I want to go back to that last statement there. The Philistine, Goliath, uh, cursed David by his gods. I don't know exactly what this looked like, but it could have been him taunting him. It could have been him celebrating to his own idols the victory that he's about to accomplish. It could have been him giving thanks to his idols for uh, paving the way, making the army so weak that it's represented by a child. I don't know. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, with a spear, with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give thee the carcass of the host. And I will give the carcass of the host, the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saved, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, and that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slung it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword, this giant sword of the enemy, and drew it out of the sheath thereof, and slew him, and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines, until thou come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. But the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shariam, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. The children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The only offensive weaponry described by Paul here is the sword of the Spirit. The Roman weapon being re referenced here was a little more than two feet long, was crafted from iron. Blacksmiths hardened the blade of the sword by covering the red-hot iron with coal dust, and the coal dust formed a hard carbon coating on the blade. Sword handles would have typically been bone or ivory or wood. Turns out we've got a lot of examples of that, brother. In battle, rows of Roman soldiers pressed back their enemies one step at a time by forcing their shields forward, using their swords to advance against the enemy. The blade was held flat and parallel to the ground. So that shield of faith is described in this picture as being the strongest and most versatile weapon for the soldier. It protected themselves through faith and preparation. It protected the church. And it allowed for advancement, that shield of faith for the army and the word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is the only offensive weapon designed to defeat the enemy's plan and rescue the captives. This is the purpose of the church. Do you think your arms could yield a two-foot-long sword if I had one here today? We might. Now, I'm not just talking about putting in the sheave and hoping your hips will hold it up. These Roman soldiers didn't carry it like this. They carried it like this. This is a muscle most of us don't have. So they're bearing a shield, and they're carrying a sword parallel to the ground in this manner. Do you realize the strength it would take? I mean, this, my arm's sore from a pencil. This thing would have been this long. Now, I hesitate to even guess how much that would have weighed, but they're keeping it like this as they advance. I've never been a soldier. I think you could probably tell that. But I would wager that they were doing that for longer than a few minutes as they were trying to advance their front lines. And if their sword dropped, it could have been catastrophic. At the very least, a tortoise formation would have had to been called out. The advancing would have to stop as they tried to defend themselves because their sword fell to the ground. This is the sword of the Spirit, as described here by Paul. Certainly, you might get it off the ground. You might swing it a few times, 
But the Roman soldier described above kept it parallel to the ground with only one hand, and that hand would have had to have been prepared to lunge as needed to do the job. Kept steady as they marched and to lunge as needed. You realize the str- I mean, your center of gravity uh, is, is stretched out. I was watching Eddie show us how to throw knives out there, and, and, and I'm sure he knows this, but to throw forward that back leg, as you kept showing us how much how to throw it further and further that back leg had to go further and further back his center of gravity had to be stretched to be able to do that so did the soldier as they lunged that back leg had to keep on the ground keep the body anchored prepared foundation it keeps circling back around are you that prepared with this sword which is the word of God you need to be you're called to be For far too long, we've allowed ourselves to believe that we're guarding the foundations by being weak, by being unprepared with dry shields. This message isn't a pretty little message about the armor. This message is about guarding the foundations. Let me remind you, the psalm we began with said, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? How precious are these foundations to you? Are they not precious enough that you will be prepared? That you will be a preparing? That you will seek to strengthen yourselves? Preparing your shields? Preparing your bodies? Preparing your feet with the gospel? One last reference I want to read, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul, again, being our writer, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching, his yielding of the sword of the Spirit, was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, that your sealed uh, sword of the Spirit, faith, or, or rather, I'm sorry, that your shield of faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, and it won't, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. I totally lost my place. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received nor, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is discernment. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually, uh oh, there's the word, discerned. True discernment is not what you enter into and what you don't enter into. It's not that simple. True discernment is spiritual discernment. True discernment requires a strong faith, a prepared faith, a prepared foundation. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For he who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct, uh, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Your training for battle has begun, beloved. Each soldier here is trusted to his own girdle, belted securely. Your witness, your testimony, your fight, your defense of this foundation depends upon it. 
Belt it securely. See that your feet are bound appropriately to ensure your firm stance on the foundation of Christ Jesus. Rise up early, as Abraham was known to do, each day going forward, ready to present the gospel at every opportunity. This armor, as it's been often said, has nothing guarding the back. The Christian soldier is to march forward. The Christian soldier is to be ever ready to continue to progress, to continue, as the scripture says, to strive towards Christ. Here we will begin to feel the weight of our shield. I've got a series of messages I'm following this up with. Christians in this, Christians in this, Christians in this, and there's probably about 14 parts of it, and it's going to be long. And I'm not giving you all the answers. Because discernment is true discernment is spiritual discernment. I'm going to present what the Bible says about certain things to the best of my ability as the Lord has led me. Here we shall be fitted with our signet helmets. Think of those helmets again. As I said, some of them had that plume, a plume of a, a certain coloring to identify uh, the, who they're a soldier of, where they belonged. Here we shall be fitted with our signet helmets, bearing the banner of our salvation. Here, beloved, let us exercise the sword. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Is there a plume upon your helmet? Or are you one of those renegade soldiers, marching to the beat of your own drum, electing what fight to get involved with and what not to get involved with? Those are typically referred to as spies or rebels or bounty hunters. They have no sure foundation. They have no protection. The only protection is offered from the Lord Jesus Christ for this battle that each person here is involved in already is the church that he established. I pray that you'll take this very seriously. I pray that we will indeed search ourselves to see that we have this armor, to see that our shields of faith, most importantly, probably the greatest blessing for me out of this study, that our shields of faith are wetted, are soaked and the foundation of the Word of God. If you have concerns or questions over these things, these are the days, these are the hours to ask. Be much in prayer. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent now that you might be strengthened for what lies ahead. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer.